15. Skies. Then came a rainbow of sweetest multicolor, of a splendor glorious and exquisite, delicate as the breath from paradise, stretching its majestic arch though athwart the waning gloom from range to range, as one drank in the glimpses of that dark corner in this peculiar fairyland, a mighty peal of magnificent, stentorian clashing broke finally upon me, and heaven's electricity again flitted fearfully over the earth, a slant, upwards, downwards again, upwards again disappearing over the unmoved hills like a thousand tortured souls fleeing from Dandy's Hades, and here I sit on, in that veritable, rock of ages, cleft for me, glad that no human touch save that of my own mean clay, that no human voice came between me and the voice of that infinite beyond, I seem to have been standing on the verge of another world, another great unknown, the heavens raged and the thunders thereof roared, and the wild wind hissed and moaned and wailed the hopeless wail of the lonely, tormented soul, the cold was intense, and through it all I sat drenched to the skin, on the bleak mountain thus I was the pitifulest atom of loneliest humanity, yet felt no loneliness, the face of the earth frowned in angry fury, the awfulness of the raging elements dwarfed all else to upper annihilation, but even at such a time, coming all too seldom in the lives of most of us, when standing in some remote spot which still tells forth the story of the world's youth, One's inmost nature thrills with a sense of unison with it all beyond human expression. All was so grand, inspiring one with an awe beyond one's comprehension. A peculiar, dread of one's own earthly insignificance. These pictures, graven in one's memory with the strong pencil of our common mother, are indelible, yet quite beyond expression. As in our own souls we cannot frame in words our deepest life emotions. So as we penetrate into the depths of that kindly common mother of us all we find human words the same utterly futile channel of expression. To have our souls tuned to this silent eloquence of nature, to catch the sweetness of those wine-swept, heaven-directed mountains, to understand the unspoken messages of those rushing rivers and those gigantic gorges, to feel the heartbeat of nature and her beauty in perfect harmony with all that is best within us. We must be silent, and disturbed, preferably alone. This is not flowery sentiment it is what every true lover of old and lovely nature would feel in western China, yet still unspoiled by the taint of man's absorbing stream of civilization, and in the stress of modern life, and the progress of man's monopolization of the earth on which he lives, it is beautiful to some of us, of whom it may be said the highest state of inward happiness comes from solitary meditation in an perturbed loneliness under the broad expanse of heaven to know that there are still some spots of isolation where human foot has never turned the clay, and where, out of sight and sound of fellow mortals, we may even for a time shake off the violating, and natural fetters of a harassing western life. Soon it seemed as if a silken cord had suddenly been severed, and I had been dragged from a world of sweet infinitude down to a sphere mundane and everyday, to something I had known before. God or what is nature? Ha! Why do I not name thee God? Art thou not the living garment of God? O heaven, is it in very deed? He, then, that ever speaks through thee, that lives and loves in thee, that lives and loves in me. AP I heard the crack of the bamboo and the patter of feet in the sodden, slippery pathway, and I knew my men were to come, crawling out from my rock. I descended again to common things, having to listen to the disgusting talk of my Chinese followers. Though a very slender vocabulary saved me from losing entirely the memory of that great picture then passing away. The sun shone through the clouds, which had given place again to blue, 
the pervading blackness of a few moments before had disappeared, and with the sinking sun we descended thoughtfully to the town. The hill is solid sandstone, and the uneven ruts made by the daily procession of ponies were transformed into a network of tiny streams, that my comrades were drenched to the skin gave them no thought, they turned to immediately, while I dived hurriedly to the bottom of my box and gulped down quinine. They sat around and drank hot water, holding forth with eloquence beyond their went on the general advantages, naturally and supernaturally, of their native city of Changshuangfu, and well they might, for I know no prettier spot in the whole of western China, fifty men coolies who were carrying general merchandise in all directions, and who had taken shelter in the large inn I stayed at Rose with me the next morning, as I ate my morning meal spluttering the rice over the floor as I tried vainly to control my chopsticks with frost-nipped fingers. They went through the filthy round of early morning routine, squatting about with their dirty face rags, and a half pint of greasy water in their brass receptacle shaped like the soup plate of civilization, and leaving upon their necks the traces of their swills. They wiped the dirt into their hair, and considered they had washed themselves. Men would emerge from their rooms, fully dressed with the dish cloud in one hand and the hand basin in the other on the way to their morning tub. Oh, the filth, the unspeakable filth of these people. Would that the Chinese would emulate the cleanliness of the Japs. Though even that I would question. In several years in the Orient I have not yet come across the cleanliness in any race of people to be compared with that cleanliness which in England is next to godliness. The people of Pen were pleased to see me. They hurried about obligingly to get food for man and beast and the womankind, poor but light-hearted, cracked suggestive jokes with my men with the utmost freedom. In this town there are many Lolo it might be said that the entire population is of Lolo origin. Although had I suggested to any particular inhabitant that this was a fact he would probably have taken keen offense, and things might have gone badly with me. With the men it is most difficult to tell there is little difference between the Hanren and the tribesmen, but the difference is often most marked in respect to the women. The Chinese woman has a considerably fairer skin than the female of Lolo descent, and her customs and manners, apart from the distinct colloquial accent, are quite evident as pretty sure proof of distinction of race. After the Lolo have mingled with the Chinese for a few years, however, it is quite difficult to differentiate between them. As most of the Lolo women now speak Chinese in this town I did not hear any language foreign to the Chinese language and a good many of the men are sufficiently educated to read the Chinese character even if they do not write it. The forward racial condition of the Lolo people in this district is far greater than that of the people of the same tribe to the west of Tailifu, and in latitudes where their language and customs of life and dress are more or less maintained, the women are generally of better physique than the Chinese, principally on account of the fact that their work is almost exclusively outdoor, but as they begin to copy the Chinese, and live a more sedentary life. This fine physique will probably gradually disappear. A good many already bind their feet. When I came out in the early morning the thermometer was 20 degrees below zero, and my nose was red and without feeling. Feng Mao AQ and great coat were required, but I was totally oblivious of the hours stiff climbing awaiting me immediately outside the town, to reach the highest point in which bathed me in perspiration as if I had played three sets of tennis in the tropics. Mountains were wild and barren, with nothing in them to enable one to forget in natural beauty the fatigues of a toilsome ascent. Villages came now and again in sight, stretched out at the extremity of the plain before my eyes, with their white gables, red walls, and black tiled roofs.
but during the day we passed through to only. The first was a little place where decay would have been absolute had it not been for the leaking AR flag, which enables, squeezes, to be extorted ruthlessly from the muleteer and conveyed to the pockets of the prospering customs agent. It boasted only 10 or 12 tumbling lean to tenements, where my sympathy went out to the half dozen physical wrecks of men who came slowly and stared long, and wondered at the commonest article of my meager impedimenta. They seemed poorer and lower down the human scale than any I had yet seen. On one of the ragged garments worn by a man of about twenty-five I counted no less than thirty-four patches of different shapes, sizes and materials, hieroglyphically and skillfully thrown together to hide his sore-strewn back, but still his brown and washed flesh was visible in many places. Looking upon them, one did not like to think that these beings were men, men with passions like to one's own, for all the interests, real and imaginary, all the topics which should expand the mind of man and connect him in sympathy with general existence, were crushed in the absorbing considerations of how rice was to be procured for their families of diseaseful breaths. They had no brains, these men, or if heaven had thus orbless them, they did not exercise them in their industry their course, rough hands alone gained food for the day's feeding, and these mud-roofed, mud-sided dwellings these were to their homes, to be worse homes than none at all. In their architecture not even a single idea could be traced the Chinese here had proceeded as if by merest accident. All I could think as I returned their wondering glances was that their world must be very, very old. But I have no time or space to talk of them here. To throw more than a cursory glance at them would lead me into interminable disquisitions of a mythological, anthropological, craniological, and antediluvian nature for which one would not find universal approval among his readers. To those who would study such questions I say, fall to. There is enough scope for a lifetime to bring into light the primeval element so strangely woven into the lives of these people. A human man I bunning and weird street decoration made the place hideous in my eyes. The crowded town was making considerable ado about some expected official. I saw none, more than a courteous youth to whom, of course, I was quite a known and deaf and dumb who graciously shifted goods and chattels from the inn's best room to hand it over to me for my occupation. With due tact and some excitability, I protested vigorously against his coming out. He insisted, smiling upon him with grave benignity. I said that I would take a smaller room, and gave orders to that effect to my man, adding that my whole sense of right and justice towards fellow travelers revolted against such self-sacrifice on his part. He still insisted, smiling again, this time the timid smile of the commoner looking up into the face of the great. I allowed myself reluctantly to be pushed bodily into the best apartment. This was my intention from the first, although not too familiar with it. I allowed the Chinese to imagine that I was well grounded in the absurdities of his national etiquette, whilst he, observing, too, the outrageous routine of common politeness, probably went away swearing that he had been turned out. He had cut off his nose to spite his face. I cannot truthfully deny, however, that the fellow was very kind, but he would persist in the belief that it was an impossibility for me to tell the truth. Later, pointing at me and eyeing me up and down as I shaved in the twilight, he sneered, Englishman, Englishman, and scooting with an armful of clothing, small pots of eatables, official documents and other sundries told me point-blank that he did not believe that such a noble person could not speak such a contemptible language as Chinese, seeing no official, then, I presumed I was their man, 
whilst I fed slowly on my rice and cabbage in a small order floor room, with my nose as near as convenient to my oil lamp to get a little warmth. The discomfort of Chinese life was forced upon me, and I imagined I was having a good time. I was the best off in the inn by far, the others must have been colder, certainly had worse food to eat, and yet to me it was all the height of utmost cheerlessness, from a hamlet opposite the town, where I sat down by the fire exhausted in an old woman's shaky dwelling, and federal on aged sardines and hot rice atrocious mixture, there is a plain extending for twenty league to you and man I flat as country in the Fen district, the road was good in wet weather, however, it must be terrible and I would drive a motor car across, were it not for the 15 inches ruts which disfigure the surface, and I know a man who would do this even, despite the ruts, he takes a delight in running over dogs and small boys, damaging rickshaws, bumping into bullet carts, and so on he would have done it with liveliest freedom, but what poverty there was, what women, what children, with barely an exception, the women had faces ground by want and bare necessity, in which every cheerful and sympathetic lineament had been effaced by lifelong slavery and misery. In the bitter cold day, women and children, crouched round a scanty firewood firing, not enough even to keep alive their natural heat. One long pitiful sight of thriftless poverty, to Hungary was a fearful day. Little to eat could I procure, and the cold gave me a lusty ox's appetite. To me a bellyful came as a windfall. At last we sat down by the roadside at one small table. Hearing the test of age, rickety and worder meaten, we gathered like hogs at their troughs, with the household hog scratching at our feet. I grew impatient and querulous over constant culinary disappointment. I longed not for the heaped-up board of the pampered and luxurious. I wanted food. Indigent man was I whose dietetical elegancies had been forgotten. A man with ravenous desires seeking sustenance. Not relishes, the means of life. Not the means of pampering the carcass. I wanted food, and here I had it. The hungry were to be fed. It was a foul orgy, a gruesome spectacle, a horrible picture of the gluttony of famished men. This meal conjured up visions of the most unlovely of the functions. We fed on mean, that long, greasy, grimy, slippery, slimy string of boneless white. I see it now, and the half-done tin of sardines set before me. Two, the broken stools in the thatch-worn shed, the dismantled hearth. The muddy earthen floor, the haggard, hungry villains I see them all again, as it should, however, be said that I went away from the main road over a range of hills where nobody lives, had I kept to the Tolotetium, food would have been quite easy to get, to Hungary was given the honor of entertaining me over the Sunday, a pleasant rest after a week of arduous and exhausting walking, I arrived late at night, and the old town's rough streets were bathed in a silver shower of moonbeams. The air was cold and frosty. Little groups of the curious came to the doors of their dwellings, laughing sarcastically, despite their own poverty, at the distinguished traveler thus coming upon them. In marked contrast to this outside animation were the happenings at the inn which gave me shelter. Business was bad. Three undistinguished travelers coolies with loads and myself and men made up the meager total of paying guests. This was the reason why it was chosen for me. For peace and quiet quiet had been forced upon the household, so I was told, by the death by fits of a haughty and resolute lady, and now that the night had fallen and we had all had our rice, the deep hush or its equivalent in cafe, at all events seemed likely to be unbroken until a new day should dawn, my room here had a veranda overlooking a back court, 
And here I sat at midnight, unseen by anyone, looking up to the changeless stars in an unpitying sky, and as I stood thus there blew from the gates of night and across the mountains a wind that made me shiver less with physical cold than with a sense of loneliness and captivity. For unto my veranda came four soldiers, and it seemed as if the hour of death drew nigh, and as I looked again, first upon the cloud-swept sky and upon the cold and steely glitter of the stars, and then again at the soldiers with their guns, I turned giddy, shuddering at the darkness and the loneliness, and with a nameless fear lying at the center of life like a lurking shadow of an unknown, unseen foe, they addressed me, but I cared not what they said, I pretended I could not speak Chinese, watched the quartet form a circle, and talked slowly and low, and it did not need the mind of a prophet to see that they were discussing how best they could capture me, where are they going to kill me? My boy and the other friends I had in the place were sleeping blissfully, ignorant that their master was in such trying straits. I was asked my name, and the inquirers, not over civil, were told. They again asked me for something, I knew not what, probably for my passport. I had none, and cursed my luck that I had forgotten to pack it when I had left Tom Schwanfu. To me it was quite evident that they were deciding my destiny, or so it seemed in the stillness of the night. Looking upwards, I wondered whether I was soon to learn the secret of the stars and sky, and those men seemed to watch the secret workings of my soul. Outside the wine made moan continuously. Suddenly my door opened noisily. A light was flashed upon us, and I saw the bulky form of the landlord. Then all was well. Soon one of my men appeared, and explained that the soldiers were on their way to meet an official who was coming from Taylaifu that their instructions were that they would meet him at Hongwei. They took me for the Guan, so my end was not yet. But now, months afterwards, when I stand and listen to the wind at midnight, there seems born to me in every SOB and well a memory of that hateful night and the four soldiers with their guns. It seemed not long afterwards that I was awakened by noises on the doorstep. Looking out, I found a bullock, its four feet tied together with a straw rope. Riding in its last agonies, the butcher, in his hand a cruel 24-inch bladed knife still red with blood, smiling the smile of ironic torture as he looked down upon his struggling victim. He straightway skinned the animal and cut up the carcass immediately in front of my door, where Lao Chan waited to get the best cut for my dinner. My three fellow lodgers squatted alongside, going through their apologetic evolutions as if naught were happening. Their dirty face rags were to run and rerun. They got to work with that universal toothbrush the forefinger, and that the dead body of a bullock was being dissected two feet from the table at which they ate their steaming rice was a detail of not the slightest consequence in the world. Hongwei is an old-time capital of one of the original kingdoms, destroyed in the year AD 749. The road leading out towards Chao Chao was built some considerable time before that year and has never been subject to any repairs whatever for this fact I have drawn upon my imagination, but should be very much surprised to know that I am far out in my reckoning. Villagers have appropriated the public slabs and small boulders which comprise the wretched thoroughfare, reminiscent puddles tell you the tale, and the badness of the road renders it necessary for the traveler to be out of bed a little earlier than usual to face the ordeal. The road today has been practically as bad as walking along the sides of the Yangtze. But as I studied the patience and physical vitality of my three men, laughing and joking with the light-heartedness of children, with nearly seventy cathies dangling from their shoulder pole, without a word of murmuring, 
I felt a little ashamed of myself that I whose duty it was nearly to walk, should have made such a fuss. These men were prepared to work a very long time for very little reward, as no matter how small the rewards for the terribly exhausting labor, it were better than none at all. So they philosophized, that quiet persistence and unfailing patience form a national virtue among the Chinese the capacity to wait without complaint and to bear all with silent endurance. This virtue is seen more clearly in great national disasters which occasionally befall the country. The terrible famine of 1877-8 was the cause of the death of millions of people, and left scores of millions without house, food or clothing, they were driven forth as wanderers on the face of the earth without home, without hope. The government does nothing whatever in these cases, the people who wish to live must find the means to live. And what impressed me all through my wanderings was the absolute science to which poverty is reduced. In such calamities the Chinese, of all men on the earth's surface, will battle along if there is any chance at all. If he is blessed, he once more becomes a farmer, but if not, he accepts the position as inevitable and irremediable. The Chinese race has the finest power in the world to withstand with fortitude the ills of life and the miseries which follow inability to procure the wherewithal to live. Their nerves are somehow different from our western nerves. In China nothing is wasted, not only in food, but in everything affecting the common life. That a beast dies of disease is of no concern. It is eaten all the same from head to hoof, from skin to entrail. And the remarkable fact is that they do not seem to suffer from it, either. At Kangti mentioned in a previous chapter I saw a horse being pushed down the hillside to the river. It was not yet dead, but was dying so far as I could see, of inflammation of the bowels, its body was cut up, and there were several people waiting to buy it at 40 cash the catty, from Hongai onwards I met a class of people I had not seen before, they were the Menchia Pezzo, Major H.R. Davies, whose treatise on the tribes of Yuan Man at the end of his excellent work on travel in the province, is probably the best yet written, writes that he met Menchia people only on the plains of Talifu and Chow and never east of the latter place. This was in travel some 10 or 12 years ago, and the fact that there are now many Menchia families living in Hongai is a testimony to their enterprise as a tribe in going farther afield in search of the means to live. There is little doubt that the Menchia originally came from country lying between the border of the province and round Lichiangfu and the Tailifu Plain and Lake. Most of them wear Chinese dress, many of the women bind their feet and the practice is growing in popularity although those who have not small feet are still in the majority. In a small city lying some few li from the city of Tailai all the inhabitants are Menchia, and I found no difficulty in spotting a Chinese man or woman there is a distinct facial difference. Menchia have bigger noses, generally the eyes are set farther apart, and the skin is darker. Pink trousers are in fashion among the ladies trace of base feminine weakness, but are not by any means the distinguishing features of race. Footnotes Footnote AQ, wine cap, a long Chinese wadded hat which reaches over one's head and down over the shoulders, tied under the chin with ribbons, EJD footnote AR, leaking, as everyone knows, is custom duty, all along the main roads of China one meets leaking stations, distinguished by the flag at the entrance, EJD footnote AS, I passed this spot a month or so afterwards and am convinced that at the time I wrote the above there must have been something radically wrong with my liver. Had it been in Killarney in summer, nothing could have been more entrancing than the two lakes midway between Yuan Manai and Hongai. Patches of light green vegetation, 
interspersed with brown red houses, skirting the lake shore in pleasant contrast to the green of the water, which, bathed in soft sunshine, lapped their walls in endless restlessness, of that delicate bloom which is indescribably beautiful. The morning sky looked down tranquilly upon the undulating hills of grey and brown, which seemed to have in and guard a very fairyland. Geobankers of the place did not go wrong when they suggested the overlooking hillsides as suitable resting places for the departed. All was ancient and primitive, yet simple and glorious, and as one of my followers called my attention to the telegraph wires, I was struck by the fact that this alone stood as the solitary element of what we in the West call civilization, yet nothing bore traces of gross uncivilization, the people, hard workers albeit, were happy and quite content with their slow-moving caravan, which we would, if we could, soon displace for the railway engine. Plowmen with their buffaloes and their biblical plowshare, raked over the red ground, women, with babies on their backs, picked produce already ripe, children played roundabout, and those old enough helped their fathers in the fields, coolies bustled along with exchanges of merchandise with neighboring villages, quite content if but a couple of meals each day were earned and eaten, the official. The ruler of these peaceful people, passed with old-time pomp not in a modern carriage, not in a modern saloon, but in the same way as did his ancestors back in the dim ages, in a sedan chair carried by men. There was plenty of everything enough for all but all had to contribute to its getting. There was no greed. Their few wants were easily satisfied. And here, as everywhere in my journeyings, I have noticed it to be the case among the common people. There was no desire to get rich and absorb wealth. They wanted to live, to learn to labor as little as the growth of food supplies demanded, to become fathers and mothers, and, to their minds, to get the most out of life, and who will contradict it. They do not see with the eyes of the West, we do not, we cannot, see with their eyes, but surely the living of this simple life, the same as it was in the beginning, has a good deal in it, it is not uncivilization, not barbarism and the fair-minded traveler in China can come to but one opinion, even in the midst of all the conflicting emotions which result from his own upbringing, that we could, if we would, learn many a good lesson from the old-time life of the celestial in his own country, yet these are the very people who may jostle us harshly later on in the racial struggle. I am not suggesting that when the Chinese adopts the cult of the West, and comes into general contact with it and I believe that I am right in saying that this is the desire generally speaking, of the whole of the enlightened classes he continues with his few wants, as a matter of fact, he does not, he is as extravagant, and perhaps more so, than the most of us, I have seen straits Chinese waste at the gaming tables in their gorgeous clubs as much in one night as some European residents handle in one year, and he is quick to get his motor car, his horses and carriages, and endless other ornaments of wealth, so that if progress in the course of the evolution of nations means that the Chinese too will demand all that the European now demands, and will cease to find satisfaction in the existing conditions of his life in the new goal towards which he is moving, and if he, in course of time, should increase the cost of living per head to equal that of the Westerner, then he will lose a good deal of the advantage he now undoubtedly has in the struggle for racial supremacy, but if, gradually taking advantage of all in religion, in science, in literature, in art, in modern naval and military equipment and skill, and all that has made nations great and made for real progress in the West, 
he were also to continue his present hardy frugality in living which is not a tenth as costly in proportion to that of the Occident than his advantage in entering upon the conflict among the nations for ultimate supremacy would be undoubted, immeasurable, the question island will he, if he will, then the Occident has much to fear, China, going ahead throughout the empire as she is at the present moment in certain parts, will in course of time as is only fair and natural to expect have an army greater in numbers than is possible to any European power, and her food bill will be to thirds lower per head per fighting man. Subsequently, granting that China fulfills our fears, and becomes as great a fighting power as military experts declare she will, even in our generation, by virtue of her numbers alone, apart from phenomenal powers of endurance, which as every writer on China and her people is agreed, is excelled by no other race on earth, she would be able to dictate terms to the West, but, again, will she, will the people continue to live as they are living, I personally believe that the Chinese will not, I believe that as the nation progresses, more in accordance with lines of progress laid down by the West, so will her wants increase, and consequent expenses of life become greater, the UN names even are beginning to acknowledge that they have no ordinary comforts, in other parts of the empire the people are already beginning to learn what comfort, sanitation, lighting, and general organization means in the home, in the city, in the country, in the nation, and they are learning to that it all costs money, and means, perhaps, a higher state of social life. For this they do not mind the money, they are not going halfway they are going to be whole hoggers, and when in the future, near or far, we shall find them, as is almost inevitable able to compete in everything with other nations, we shall find that they have not been successful in learning the source of strength without having absorbed also some of the weaknesses, they will not escape the vices, even if they learn some of the virtues of the West, EJD Chapter XIX, Peculiar Forebodings of Early Morning, a would-be speaker of English, the young men of UN men and the reform movement, teachers of English, remarks on methods adopted, disregard of the customs of centuries, a rushing sequence, missionaries and the educational movement, Christianity and the position of the foreigner, is the Chinese racially inferior to the European, interesting opinion, peace of Europe and integrity of China, Zhao Chao Quip gets a bad time, the author's levy, natural, culture, of the people, story of the birth of boys, notes on Xiaquan, experiences of the non-Chinese speaking author at the inn, how he got the better of an official, a magnificent temple, Quan In and the priests, this morning, from the foot of a high spur, I saw a couple of gawky fellows shambling along in an imitation European dress, and I pricked out my ears it seemed as if Europeans were about, one of the fellows had on a pair of long-legged cocky trousers ludicrously patched with Chinese blue, a tweed coat, 